Thank you so much. Good morning. We've been involved over the course of these weeks together in an eight-part series that deals with the whole issue of discipleship. And my interest all along has been, what is God's vision for the church in this series? We'll start a new book study in the coming weeks. But today we're wrapping up this whole aspect of discipleship. And God has a tremendous master plan for believers to follow. And when we follow this plan strategically and willingly, I think that the impact can be extraordinary. So I'd like for you now to take your Bible and join with me in our conclusion of the series to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And if you have trouble finding 2 Timothy, it's right after 1 Timothy. And that should help you a great deal. And here in verse 1, down through verse 7, Paul has written these words to a young pastor that he himself has discipled. And in turn, now this young pastor is discipling others in a very secular environment in Ephesus. And Paul writes, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And it's the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. There's a lot here that we want to be able to draw out that I think has direct bearing upon the way we go about living our lives. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Our Father, as we come into your presence now, we continue our worship. We have worshipped you in song, and we've worshipped you in tithes and offerings. We now worship you in the study of your word, and then we will worship you in fellowship afterwards. And for those attending the Adult Bible Fellowship, we'll worship you there and the fellowship, and the teaching of your word. And then we'll go home, and we will worship you there, and in the days to come, as we get involved in our work and family lives, we worship you there. In both the gathered and in the scattered aspects of our lives, in both the private and the public spheres of our lives, we worship you. We consider you of highest value, Valueship, worship. So, Father, what we want to do now is to explore the breadth and the depth of your word in the verses that you've inspired Paul to pen. And pray in these minutes together that you warm these hearts, that you'll engage these minds, and that you'll shape these wills. 
As again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Some have called it a remarkable illustration of the chain of grace. He was a Christian education teacher, this Mr. Kimball. And in 1858, he led a Boston shoe clerk to saving faith in Jesus Christ. The young clerk that Mr. Kimball led to the Lord's name was D.L. Moody, who then in later stage of his life became an evangelist in the midst of an evangelistic campaign, was able to introduce F.B. Meyer to saving faith in Jesus Christ. F.B. Meyer became a very powerful pastor throughout Great Britain, leading many to Jesus, including one whose name was J. Wilbur Chapman, who later be associated with the Moody Bible Institute. Chapman was used greatly by God to lead people to Christ, and in turn, was able to make an impact upon the heart of a baseball player turned evangelist named Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday then got involved likewise in reaching people for Jesus, and one that he led to saving faith in Jesus Christ went by the name of Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham invested himself in the study of God's word, And at some point in his life, while ministering in North Carolina, a young man named Billy Graham put his faith in Jesus Christ as a result of Mordecai's influence. Now immediately, what you and I have done is create links within a chain that begins with a small beginning. A Mr. Kimball investing himself and a little young fellow named D.L. Moody. Never underestimate small beginnings. Never underestimate one-on-one encounters, because you can never anticipate in the sum total of God's sovereign plan and strategy where all of this will lead. Because what starts off when one leads another to saving faith in Jesus Christ is the principle of spiritual addition, to God's kingdom, if we continue the principles of discipleship, it leads to the multiplication of God's kingdom, which ties together now with what's happening here in this second Timothy chapter, the second chapter, because what Paul is about to do for you and for me is to be able to unpack for us the principles of spiritual multiplication in the global expansion of Christ's kingdom. What I want to do with you in these verses together is to draw out three significant gifts that God has imparted to believers so that we are better equipped to be able to minister effectively for God's glory in the home, at the workplace, in the schools, and in the neighborhoods. Three significant gifts that help us to move from addition to multiplication. 
Let's check them out. I want you to first of all notice with me that for full spectrum discipleship to take place, God has given you, given me, given us the strength to serve. And we see that immediately here in verse 1. And what captures your attention is this opening phrase, you then, my child. Let's camp on that for a second. Because if we were to go back to the historical roots of Paul's relationship to Timothy, you and I would find that in his travels, in Acts chapter 16, Paul took Timothy under his wing. Now, Timothy had been raised in a mixed racial home. It was a Jewish mother and a Gentile father. And in Acts chapter 16, verse 4, it gives us the impression that his father has, has passed away because it tells us he was a Greek. And so now what we find is that Paul has been used by God to take this young man to saving faith because though raised in a religious home, this young man had not yet come to saving faith in Christ. It is possible, as you and I know, to be a religious unbeliever. And whether you're a religionist or a secularist, you have that same need for Jesus to be your Savior and to be your Lord. Now, it's very strategic that Timothy have both Jewish and Gentile heritage because he, like Paul, will be highly impactful then in ministering in both the Jewish and the Gentile sectors that God would position this team to share the gospel in. And so that was the initial influence. But as Timothy would travel with Paul, he would most likely hear the stories that we know and are recounted for in Acts chapters 14 and 15, where Paul endured incredible hardships, challenges. He was always a riot waiting to happen, no matter what city he entered in. Where people would be opposed, in many cases, to what Paul was sharing, and so he would be thrust out and sent out into new settings. But the gospel was proclaimed. That was significant for Timothy to be able to observe and experience and process when Paul would then go on to say this in verse 1, you then, my child, his spiritual child, Paul having led Timothy to saving faith, be strengthened. Be strengthened. By the grace, not by your physical capacities, not by your intellectual prowess, not by your emotional stability, be strengthened by the grace. We are saved by grace, we are to be strengthened by grace in the trials of life. Now, Timothy would be positioned by God in Ephesus. No easy place for a believer to be. I'm thinking of the various believers right now in the Middle East, and I, even between services, was again scanning the various news sites on the web pages to be able to stay up to speed of service by service as to what's happening globally. At USA Today, Fox are both depicting new scenes of ISO and Boko Haram and other groups that are 
attempting to destroy Christianity, but you can't destroy that which on the third day the sovereign one raised him from the dead. You see. And so what they need to hear, and what you and I need to hear, is that we are saved by grace. Therefore, having been saved by grace, we are strengthened by grace to serve by grace. Be strengthened by the grace that is in you. No. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Few people have had such an impact for kingdom work as did Hudson Taylor. He was the founder of the China Inland Mission in 1865 and then went to China first in 1853, in fact. And when Hudson Taylor was in the closing years, in fact, months of his life, he was so weak he could do so little by that point. To a friend, he wrote, I am so weary I can no longer work. I cannot even read my Bible. I don't have the strength even to pray. I can only be still in God's arms like a small child and trust him for his strength. I don't know what you're going through during the course of these days. But there are going to be times in life where you're going to seem so wearied and so challenged by life. At that point, when you feel as though you're reverting back to childhood, then you're going to simply have to position yourself in the trusting arms of your sovereign God who sent Jesus to die for your sins. And it's in that spiritual positioning that you find strength by grace. For you're saved by grace, you are strengthened by grace, to serve by grace, and it's all for your God, you see. And Paul is speaking out of reality. He has faced all the challenges already in his experience as he writes to Timothy. And Timothy knows that there are perhaps tears and sweat that have been put into every word that's been penned here. And there's authenticity in what's been phrased. You then, my child, be strengthened. You're going to need it. Be strengthened by the grace that is in not yourself, Christ Jesus. That's your first significant gift, the strength to save. Now, once you've embraced that, then secondly, in full-spectrum discipleship, notice that God has given us not only the strength to save, but furthermore, the plan to follow. He's given you and he's given me an opportunity to participate in what I earlier illustrated as the chain of grace. And now there's a chain of grace that's about to unfold for you and me. We've got to see how it works and how, likewise, it impacts you and me. Look at chapter 1, verse 12, 
I first of all want to note how this chain begins in Christ's relationship to Paul. Notice that in the middle of verse 12, it says, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to God until the day what has been entrusted to me. Circle that word, entrusted. On the road of Damascus, where Saul of Tarsus was seeking to persecute Christians, God interrupted his itinerary. God ever interrupted your itinerary? To get a hold of your attention? To send you in a whole different direction that you thought you had mapped out with your life plan? God interrupts Paul's, at that point, Saul's itinerary thrusts before Saul who the sovereign one is, and that the third day Jesus was raised from the dead, and now what has occurred on, of all places, that Damascus road, an entrustment, that now Saul of Tarsus, becoming the apostle Paul, would be entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the discipleship process that would unfold, there would be an Ananias, and you can read about him in Acts chapter 9, followed by a Barnabas, whose name means literally son of encouragement, likewise in those verses, who come alongside Saul, now Paul, you see, and they're going to be guiding him across the spectrum towards maturity in Jesus Christ until Paul will reach a point where he is a reproducer. He becomes a multiplier, and countless others will put faith and trust in Jesus. But it starts with Paul in relationship to Christ. Now, you circled that word entrusted, didn't you, in verse 12? And the word entrust, parathekai, carries with it the idea of a deposit committed to someone's trust. A deposit committed to someone's trust. We trust in Christ. In turn, Christ entrusts the gospel to us. We trust in Christ's gospel. In turn, he entrusts us with the gospel, and he would like for us to do so as disciples. You see, it was a medical term describing the relationship of a patient to one's physician. So now, what you and I see is that with our trust in Jesus, there is an entrustment from Jesus, this expectation as the great physician wants to work through us so that we can share with others the great need of humanity to put faith in Jesus. The word was not only utilized in medical spheres, but it was also used in financial spheres in the time period that Paul wrote. Because this idea of a deposit committed to someone's trust 
carry with it the idea of if you were depositing something for, say, the next generation, you had to make absolutely certain that you had a deposit box that was secure. Now, what God wants to make absolutely certain is that as he has entrusted us with the deposit of salvation, that we in turn then are using it so to minister to others, and that there will be an expansion of kingdom grace through our witness. So whether your illustration is medical or your illustration is financial, the paratheke kicks in the Greek word here, a deposit committed to someone's trust. And this is what God was doing, and he did it in the most surprising way. He took someone who was so anti-Jesus, Saul of Tarsus, and made him so pro-Jesus, a witness of grace. What God wants you to do now is to find your Damascus roads and find even most unlikely sorts and find ways of using this entrustment to impact them as part of this chain of grace. Because I want you to notice now the next link in this chain. Because if we saw in verse 12 of chapter 1, the first from Christ to Paul, read on in verses 13 and 14, and notice that it then moves from Paul to Timothy. In verse 4, 13, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, God, the good deposit, circle it again, entrusted to you, and draw a line back to verse 12. It was entrusted to Paul, and now via Paul, it's entrusted to Timothy, and we begin to see this chain reaction unfolding in front of our very eyes. In the ancient Corinth, there used to be staged the Isthmian Games, the forerunner, you see, to the modern Olympics. Now, there were a lot of events, but the one that was most memorable to the Greeks that received the most attention was the relay race, because oftentimes it was held at night. They didn't have modern-day electricity, so how did it work? The competitors lined up side by side at the starting line, each bearing a torch. In the distance waited still another line, and still further, other lines. When the signal was given, the men started to run, bearing their lighted torches. When a runner reached his partner in the next line, he would pass on his light. And so from one man to the next man to the next man until the finish line was reached. And with the famous relay race in mind, the Greeks coined this phrase, quote, Let those who have the light 
pass it on. Now, I want you to see the chain that is beginning to unfold in front of our very eyes. Think the Damascus road. Christ interrupts Paul's itinerary. But then in turn, Paul, as a result of that interruption in his life of Acts chapter 9, invests himself in a a young man named Timothy of Greek-Jewish heritage, leads him to saving faith in Jesus Christ, and now what we find is that Paul has become a spiritual father. And that's why he refers to Timothy in that opening verse as my child, you see. Now, what you have to do, and I have to do, is to look at even the most unsuspecting people when it comes to matters of grace and realize you may have the capacity and the opportunity by God's grace to become a spiritual father or a spiritual mother on the basis of God's workings. So look at the various relationships that you're in right now, near and distant types, and ask, and how is God possibly setting up a series of opportunities of shared interests, conversations, and activities where he may be sovereignly positioning me to be part of that chain, much like a Kimbo reaching out to a Moody that moves on until you get to a Mordecai Hem that moves onwards towards a Billy Graham and see how this chain of grace continues to unpack. And it's all of God, you see. It's just all being part of the chain and being willing to be part of the linkage of grace. Now, it doesn't end there. You see, God does not merely want you to become a spiritual parent. He wants you to become a spiritual grandparent. So now you read a little further, and in verse 2, What you have heard from me, Paul says to his spiritual son, in the presence of many witnesses, and Timothy has heard Paul teach publicly as well as privately. Would you circle the next word? Entrust. There it is again. Both the medical and the financial history behind that word leaps out at you. You have trusted in him. He entrusts the gospel to you to share to others. Therefore, you've got your third linkage now. It is Timothy to faithful men. Entrust to faithful men. But notice what has happened now. From Christ to Paul, from Paul to Timothy, thus far those names are singular. But when you get to the next stage in your chain, it's now plural. In other words, in your ministry, you're just trying to be faithful to the context God gives you. But through this, you are moving from spiritual parenting to spiritual grandparenting as grace now is expanding. And more and more people are putting faith and trust in Jesus because you're busy leading someone to faith who then leads someone to faith, 
And as you leave the next one to faith, that previous person is leading someone to faith. And as Dawson Trotman put it in his booklet, Born to Reproduce, when I led to the Lord, was praying that God would give him a man to win to Christ. Perhaps it takes him six months. Then in turn, each of them find yet another man whom they will win to Christ. At the end of that year, there are four of them. Perhaps one teaches uh, some kind of Bible class, serves in another way, but at the same time follows the progress of the new fellow he won to the Lord. At the end of the year, the four of them join for prayer and determine, let's not allow anything to sidetrack us. Let's give the gospel to others, but let's check up on at least one, see that person through. So within the next six months, each of the four finds another man. That makes eight at the end of a year and a half. And they all go out after another, and at the end of two years, there are 16 men. And at the end of three years, there are 64. The 16 have doubled twice. And at the end of five years, there are 1,048 believers. Because you are following now God's vision plan. This is God's spiritual mathematics unfolding through his people, his church. You have moved from singular to plural, Paul, Timothy, faithful, but it all starts with grace, not works. It starts, you see, with Christ. So now you look at your living room, or you may find yourself talking one-on-one in a school hallway. It may be with a teacher. It might be with a neighbor or somewhere in the workplace. You don't know where it's going to go. But you are praying not only for his or her salvation, but you are praying also, furthermore, that once they're saved, they're going to lead someone to Christ as you move on to someone else, and you watch as this expansion process occurs. And this was completely designed by God for you and for me. And this is your purpose and my purpose for life, to be part of this chain of grace. Missionary physician in one of China's hospitals cured a man of cataracts. A few days later, 48 blind men, he writes, came to the doctor from out in the wilds of China, all holding on to a rope guided by the man who had been cured. He had led them in this way walking in chain 250 miles to the hospital looking for their cure. Whether the medical term for entrustment or the financial term for entrustment, you are living in a culture desperately looking for the cure. But if they are not examining the empty tomb, they're looking in all the wrong places. You need your own interruption of your itinerary to start looking for your Timothys. And you've got to be praying not only that you become a spiritual parent, but that you become a spiritual grandparent. And that one that you have led to Christ now becomes a spiritual grandparent and let this thing proliferate all by grace. Because this is God's mathematical plan for his people. And so you've now taken the word in trust and you've seen where it goes. But there is still another link. 
Because if you will look at the very end of verse 2, it goes on to say, who will be able to teach others also? There then is your next link. Faithful men to others also. And now you are definitely working in the plural. And you're seeing how all this thing is unfolding naturally and effectively for God's glory. If you are interested in writing, in the early 17th century, Richard Sibbs wrote a little book about Christ called The Bruised Reed. A copy of that book fell into the hands of a tin peddler who gave it to a boy named Richard Baxter. Baxter wrote, among other things, a call to the unconverted. The book got into the hands of Philip Doddridge in the 18th century. He, in turn, wrote The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul. William Wilberforce read that book. Maybe you saw the movie Amazing Grace. So it changed his life that he led the fight for the abolition of slavery. Shortly after coming to Saving Faith in Jesus, Chuck Colson read the story of William Wilberforce and began prison fellowship. And the chain continues to find new links, generation after generation after generation. And this is God's mathematical strategy, you see, of wanting to reach this world that seems so hostile to the one who emptied that tomb with the good news of salvation. Now, what God has given you in terms of significant gifts is, first of all, the strength to serve, not the strength to survive, the strength to serve. And second of all, he's given you the plan to follow. And now I've shown you the generations of that plan. Now thirdly, look at this with me from verse 3 through 7, that for full-spectrum discipleship, God has given us the models to consider. In verse 3, he extracts the first model, the model of the soldier. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, which my brothers and sisters, your brothers and sisters in the Middle East, are having to embrace right now. But again, Paul was not immune to this, because in chapter 1, verse 8, he had written, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now you create a link between chapter 1, verse 8, to chapter 2, verse 3, and now Timothy is able to say, man, does Paul have authenticity? He's not writing this in isolation from suffering. He is writing this through the usage of the integration of suffering in ministry. Share. There is a fellowship. There is a koinonia in suffering. How? As a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. It's an entrustment, not an entanglement. His aim is to please the one who enlisted him. At the end of World War I, General Pershing, great leader, had his troops in front of him and said, I have known Jesus Christ now for 47 years. 
And I could not face the battles of life without him. They say you could have heard a pin drop. It is no small thing to know that all the past is forgiven, that help is available from God every day. And then he leaned forward as he pointed his finger and said, I commend such a Savior to you. Here is a soldier, a spiritual soldier, smacked with authenticity. Now, not only does he use the model of the soldier, he then furthermore uses the model of the athlete in verse 5. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now, the discipler, if you're a believer, that's you, that's me, draws all the various traits and attributes of the soldier and applies it, but furthermore, all the traits and attributes of the athlete and applies it. But what interests us is this word crowning. For you see, in the Greek games, when somebody crossed the finish line ahead of the pack, what would be placed upon his head by the emperor was a crown, but it was a wreath. Why a wreath? Why not something metallic? Because the wreath would fade. There would be new races to run. He could not rest on the laurels of his past. Furthermore, it was only the citizens of the kingdom who could compete in these races. Now what Paul was using by way of analogy is that it's only believers at this point that can take these athletic as well as the military illustrations and relate them, because now we're talking subsequent to salvation. So as you invest yourself in other people, whether using the military or the athletic imagery, you've got a tremendous motivation here to minister effectively for God's glory as you think about the various ways even the athlete pushes himself or herself. It was 1944. Liz Hartel of Denmark contracted polio during pregnancy. Almost completely paralyzed, she was determined to continue her career as one of her country's leading dressage riders. She began a rehabilitation while still pregnant. First, she painfully learned to lift her arms. Then she regained use of her thigh muscles. Her daughter was born healthy. Liz continued her comeback. She began by crawling and soon was able to walk haltingly on crutches. Three years after her attack, still unable to use her legs properly, she entered the Scandinavian Riding Championships and came in second. She continued to push herself. She continued to improve. 1952 Olympics took place in Helsinki. Liz Hartel was selected as one of Denmark's dressage competitors. And she amazed the entire sports world by winning the silver medal. Even though she had to be assisted getting both on and off her horse. At the victory ceremony... One of the most dramatic moments in Olympic history, 
The gold medalist, Henri Saint-Cyr, Sweden, stood on the highest step of the platform. And when Liz Hartel's name was announced as the silver medal winner, Saint-Cyr stepped off his platform, went down to the main ground, assisted, assisted Liz Hartel to her position on the podium. And the crowd went wild. If that can be done in the physical realm, do you see the principles that can be applied to the spiritual realm? The soldier, the athlete, thirdly, the farmer. In verse 6, it's the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. You ponder the early mornings. You think about the late nights. And what these three metaphors have in common is they take us back to what God is saying. Behind these physical illustrations are spiritual realities of discipleship, where your objective is to be a spiritual grandparent, And that those you lead to saving faith in Christ, you are praying that they will become spiritual grandparents and great-grandparents. And so the gospel chain continues to expand and extend itself in new directions, which takes us back to that initial diagram we presented weeks ago that appears on the screen now and is furthermore found in your bulletin and mine. We've modified it a little. Professor from Wheaton had put this together, became director of the Billy Graham Center. And there you see people are on all points of the spectrum, aren't they? There are those, we'll put in the negative column, who have not yet come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Some near, some far. There are people who've come to saving faith in Christ, some babes. Others have reached the point where they are leading people, plus six, to saving faith in Christ. But if you'll Let your eyes move to the left. You'll see in red (coughs) the disciples' row at the top, speaking of two significant aspects of your purpose for living. Below, dealing with the unbeliever, my purpose in discipleship is evangelizing. Above, my purpose in discipleship is equipping. Discipleship is not merely above-the-line ministry. It is the full spectrum of ministry, both below and above. Discipleship involves evangelism for the unconverted. Discipleship involves equipping of the converted. But when you and I grasp these two significant aspects of discipleship, We pull together the sum total of it all on the left discipling, and now we realize that on a daily basis, both within our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, wherever we go, neighborhoods and so on, the full spectrum of life is unfolding in front of us. People are at various points. The question is, do we have enough capacity within us by the working of the Holy Spirit to discern where that person is at and by God's grace be moving that person along to the point where they are spiritually reproducing 
impacting others for Jesus Christ until we have not merely spiritual parenthood on our hands, but spiritual grandparenting on our hands. And then the story continues. It continues. As a Kimball reaches a Moody, who reaches a Meyer, who reaches a Chapman, who reaches a Sunday, who reaches a Ham, who reaches a Graham, who reaches still others. And the story continues. And if you are a believer, you're part of that story. Let's stand together. So, Father, we want to be able to grasp now your vision work. A mission statement and a vision statement cannot be separated from one another. Our Jesus created a visual. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Connected the mission to the vision. And then gave us powerful examples like a Paul reaching a Timothy who entrusts this gospel to others who in turn entrust it to others. Now we position ourselves likewise and view each of our relationships as opportunities May we use them wisely, impact people graciously, view each and every day now as a strategic adventure designed by you, moving into new territories of grace, to not only see a new generation of believers come out, but subsequent spiritual generations, all because of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. It all begins with you. You've given us a mission. You've given us your vision. We praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.